you're listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanoski. The following is a faith conversation with Justin Richter, the Director of Global Missions for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. He has been in this role for six months, and I wanted to hear his faith journey and his perception of mission work in this decade. Justin is an all-around good guy who came to the Christian faith in his teenage years and has a perspective that the Christian faith is heard and lived in the multicultural context of its practitioner. Enjoy this faith conversation with Justin Richter. You have been in the position of the Director of Global Missions in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. What, four, five, six months? Yeah, I think I started at the end of September. And so it's been, it's definitely been a learning experience for me. Tell me what that role does. I'm still figuring that out, but (laughs) (laughs) so basically the, one of the neat aspects of the CP church is that we have works, churches, mission points, pastors, missionaries in 19 countries outside of the U S and so at some point, somebody decided that there needs to be a point person that is the main connection between the denomination and all 19 of those other countries. And as of now, I'm filling that role. And so it's really one of the things that really excited me about this job was it offered opportunities to grow in terms of my skills and my responsibilities. And this job has that in spades. I mean, the responsibilities for this position, it's so diverse. It's different from day to day. It's part pastoral ministry. It's part organizational leadership. It's part administrator. And and so every day I get something new, some new scenario, some new problem to solve, some new person to meet, uh, some new uh, cultural understanding I have to decipher. And yeah, so I'm getting what I wanted and maybe a little bit more. (laughs) What have you learned about yourself as you've taken on this role in the last few months? Well, you know, I thought, I thought, and I think I rightly thought that I would be really good for this position. And so I've gotten a lot of confirmation with that in terms of my passion, my heart, my skills, my ability, my perspectives, my history. Uh, But one of the things that I guess I've, I've learned is, is that I'm, or that I am learning about myself is it is a, it there are challenges with this new new job and part of that is just working remote it's a completely different experience you know when i was doing pastoral ministry 
I would get daily interruptions. People would come into my office. I would do lunches, you know, two, three times a week, pastoral care. And with this job, I have relationships all over the world, but I have to be very intentional about those relationships. Things just, things just don't happen. I'm not just bumping into people. And so part of that, part of what I'm realizing is how extroverted I am (laughs) and how this job, even though it's one of the most social jobs you could ever have, it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine you have these spaces and time that are very isolating um, because you're not in, at least daily, in a mix of a group of other employees, coworkers, staff, you're working from home. And so those opportunities for collaboration, pitching ideas, um, you have to be intentional. They, they may not naturally occur. You kind of have to set it up almost like a meeting to be able to do those things as opposed to just like walking from one doorway to another. Exactly. Yeah. Like even this, this podcast, I, we had to make an appointment for it. Right. And right. so <laughs> I have to make a phone call and then you often don't, you really, some, you sometimes don't have a grasp as to what is going on on the other person's end. So you want to make conversations a little bit more efficient, a little more to the point. You, mm. you get your question answered and then you, you hang up. So, so it is interesting. And and it feels in some ways a little bit more monastic, right? Like <laughs> you're sitting at home and so you you have a lot more time with God and and this job has a huge workload. So I mean, I'm I'm working nonstop, but it's it's me and the world. And so there are a lot of opportunities throughout the day just just to be reflective and to be prayerful and and to to think and meditate and so i'm that is something that i'm learning about learning uh, about like personally is is how can i adapt to these new circumstances Mm -hmm. what have you learned about the mission field in the director's role that you have now that maybe you didn't know before you started in september oh my goodness tj so part of my story, these all sound like loaded questions. They're really not. I'm just, (laughs) I haven't had the opportunity to ask you these questions and full disclosure in case I forget to say this in the intro, Justin and I are coworkers for the missions ministry team of the Cumberland Presbyterian church. And I, I wanted to corner him to be able to hear his faith journey and to share it with others. So uh, just to be transparent, um, Justin doesn't know what all the questions are are coming, so he's he's fielding them as as I throw them to him. Anyway, what have you learned uh, about the mission field? So, what have I learned about the CP mission field? I've learned everything. So, for those who don't know me, I I served as a pastor for 14 years at a church in Albuquerque called Heights Cumberland Presbyterian Church. I was the director of missions and discipleship there. And being in New Mexico, being in Albuquerque, and actually being part of a presbytery, which is Del Cristo, that stretches from El Paso 
to San Francisco, I don't know. We're probably the biggest presbytery. You could tell me, TJ, if I'm wrong. Yeah. And then you go up to Colorado. Yeah. And then, Colorado. And then down to Texas. So geographically Texas, speaking. Southern California, Northern California. Yeah. Basically, we cover a, a fourth of our country. Mm -hmm. And so our missions program at our church, we had a pretty good missions program. We, we, I think we independently supported eight to 10 different missionaries over my tenure there. And, and so we, we were kind of really invested in what God had called us to do. And, and then I also served as the, as the chair for our missions committee where I had first initially met you, TJ, mm -hmm. or our presbytery. And so I did a lot of, I was, I've always been involved with missions, pastorally speaking. But the funny thing is, is being geographically removed from the mothership. And when I say mothership, I'm thinking Tennessee. Like <laughs> I actually had zero idea what we were doing as a denomination when it came to missions. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's good to announce over a podcast and publicly, but I knew I, every once in a while I'd get a flyer for the Stott Wallace Fund. And then I would see maybe once or twice like these videos. I remember seeing uh, a video from for the Wilkerson's when they were going down to Columbia. But and it wasn't anything personal. It was just you only have so you only have a certain capacity and and it gets filled up with other tasks and missions opportunities. And so, and it's not in your face every day. And so coming into this role, I, it's been actually really encouraging uh, and amazing just to see all the different things that we have going on overseas. And uh, whether that's in Southeast Asia or Central America or, uh, or Haiti, it's it's blown me away. It really has. Like we have such a, a great history of global missions and just to have this opportunity to learn about it, to become part of it. Like I, I couldn't ask for more. Mm. Well, what brought you to this point in your life and in your faith journey? Do you have an early experience there would be a good starting point that you think was preparing you or pointing you into the position and into the ministry that you're in now. Was there a childhood experience, a, a youth experience, young adult, something that happened last year that kind of pointed you into Christianity and then, of course, ministry? Yeah, that is a loaded question. I don't think there's a singular experience. I feel like this is my life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's worth explaining a little bit. I, I'm the product of a multicultural home. My mom is half Japanese and she grew up in Japan. She's for the first 20 years or so of her life. She's fluent in Japanese and she she is a product of a marriage between my grandmother who's japanese and my grandfather who was in the military mm. and he loved japan so much that he did everything he possibly could 
to keep his family in Japan for as long as possible. And so my dad, who grew up on the border of Mexico, he was he's a Texan. He grew up in a small town called Laredo, Texas. Mm-hmm. And so he grew up speaking Spanish, uh, English. He really grew up in a in a pretty diverse environment. And so when he finished school, he joined the military and he had this heart to see the world. And so the first place that he he was stationed through the Air Force was, was Japan, and that's where he met my mom. And so they met, they got married, and then they decided to move, and this is a simple version, but to Germany, and there I was born. So I was born overseas. Mm-hmm. I was born in Germany. and. I grew up moving quite a bit. My middle school years, I middle school to my freshman year in high school, I lived in Italy. I played on an Italian soccer team. I, I I lived off base. And so there's never been a time where I've been able to live in just one culture. It's just, you know what my kids have experienced? My kids have have they were born in Albuquerque and now my son, he just turned 14 yesterday. He spent 14 years of his life in one place in kind of one mode of living, one paradigm. And that's, that's something so foreign to me. I don't even understand that. That's not, I don't even have a category for that. (laughs) And so, so yeah, that was kind of my upbringing. That was kind of my, my childhood, I would say I grew up, there's a, a term for a th- for that kind of childhood. They call it being third culture. Mm-hmm. So any missionary kid would understand that. They, they, they have roots in a culture that are their parents' cultures, but then they go and they live in a foreign place and that becomes their home as well. And so they never they never fully have an identity of what their parents are, or they never fully have an identity of where they grew up. They kind of exist in between in that third place. And so that's where I'm comfortable at. I'm I'm kind of comfortable in between worlds. Now, when it comes to how I even became a, a believer, how I came to know Jesus, that that's part of my story as well. You know, my mom being uh, part Japanese, if anybody knows about the faith and Japanese culture, J- Japan is a very difficult place for for the church. Not in terms of persecution, but it's just really difficult for your average Japanese person to really grasp what the gospel means and, and who, who God is. And... They just come from a completely different paradigm, right? Like, like everything is spiritual, but God is, God is very imminent in everything of everyday life or, or, or the spirits are imminent. And so to have this idea that God is, a there's a God who's personal and above, and he's the creator and he's his own person. That's a foreign concept for him. And so my mom kind of grew up like that, um, more agnostic. And then her parents, I would say, 
were agnostic to atheistic and very critical of the Christian faith. And so my mom, I kind of adopted that mentality in a lot of ways growing up. That was, that was my starting spot. So my freshman year in high school, I, I kind of had this mentality and I had friends who were a couple friends who were Christians. They were involved with this ministry and they, they kept on trying to invite me to do different things and, and share their, the faith with me. And I'd be like, ah, you know, you're, you're just, you just believe in Jesus because you're American. Like you grew up with it. That's okay. I'm not against you, but that's just not for me. Oh, cool. So you saw the religious faith, uh, Christianity, as a cultural aspect and not something separate. Yeah, exactly. And I just remember being like, oh, I'm part Japanese. Like, like I even went to the library and started checking out books on Buddhism, even at a young age, right? Like, like, cause I was like, yeah, I should explore that. Like, that's maybe part of my identity. Mm-hmm. I remember being in eighth grade, checking out a book on, on Buddhism, <laughs> uh, just to explore that. Yeah. It was really fascinating. Did you, so, have, yeah. Did you have good conversations, uh, for teenagers pertaining to hearing about Jesus and then maybe arguing back and saying how it's not for you? What were those conversations like? Yeah, even at that age, I would we would get into I want to say arguments, but discussions. Mm-hmm. And I just really like I really just didn't want it. And I really didn't see the need for it. And I thought I had some pretty airtight arguments and just reasoning, and I did. There there is logic behind that. And so really like God had to do something to invade my invade my world and so these same friends eventually invited me on a mission trip to go to romania actually and at that time and it's still a little bit of the case romania had that dictatorship and through his dictatorship and through some of his policies it created a huge uh issue with orphans they had a lot of kids who were just on the streets they had no hope. A lot of them, you know, turned to substance abuse to just cope with life. And so we were going there to build, build playgrounds and to do. Why were you going there? Because they invited me to do it. They, they, they asked me, they said, Hey, we're going to do this. And I thought, Oh, like, like I'd like to go with you. And these were my friends. So to do a trip with my friends, to go build playgrounds and to do something in Romania, that was, that sounded like a good idea. Okay. They're doing it from a religious perspective. Yes, it was through uh, it was through almost like a young life type ministry. It wasn't called young life, but it was a similar type ministry. All right, and and you're you're doing it to fill a need, hang out, fill with a need, hang out with friends, go to Romania. All right, and so we're building these playgrounds, and I see the kids, and I met. Romanian believers, and I, I want to remember. I wanted ended up going over to these these believers' houses, and they were they were from that area, and they had they had their family, and they had these like just this really tiny apartment. And uh, for, from my perspective, it was 
it was very humbling circumstances, mm-hmm. but they had this joy in their circumstances that that was just obvious and overflowing. And it was because of Christ. And I, I also got to see the way these believers loved, loved these kids in very meaningful, real ways. And then I remember at some point, I, I heard the gospel. And it was in a very powerful way. I, I still remember this idea of God giving his life for us and what it means for us to respond in kind. And I can't remember the story exactly, but the guy shared an illustration of a a guy who he's wandering through the deserts in California. And he was like a 49er, you know, searching for gold and he runs out of water and he's just parched. He's on the verge of death. And then he comes to this pump, water pump, that's 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 attached to a well system. And he starts trying to crank the shaft to get water and nothing's coming out. And then he notices there's this little jar of water with a lid on it. And there's a little note. And on the note, note it says, you have to pour the water. You have. To get water, you have to give the water. You have to pour the water into the pump. And so this guy is like faced with this circumstance, this, this dilemma, right? Do I just drink this little cup of water and that's it? Do I satisfy my thirst instantly, but then I know it's only going to be a moment? Or do I trust in this act of faith, pouring this water down this hole, not knowing whether anything's going to happen? And so the guy decides to to take the chance to have faith and pour the water into the pump. And sure enough, it primes the pump. It 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 hydrates the seals, and all of a sudden an abundance of water comes out. And I just remember like thinking two things. I just ended up thinking, like really seeing, I was like in a very deep way the reality of christ i just remember thinking wow i've seen that jesus is real on this trip that his love and his compassion in that that when he works in this world the world looks and acts as it should be and then i also it wasn't like a cheap belief message that i was that I was offered. It was, if Jesus is real, then it's not just something that I believe. It's something I have to give my life to. And it's an act of faith that if I trust it, abundant life will return. And so I just remember my heart breaking open. And I remember just coming to Romania, one version of Justin, and then leaving Romania, a completely different version of Justin. <laughs> when you returned home from the trip, how were you received by your parents, 
by your classmates, by your siblings, that changes relationships when you begin one with Christ. How did that yeah. go for you? You know, I think there was, there wasn't, there were, initially, initially I would say like there was curiosity. I wasn't like in, in people's faces. <laughs> I wasn't even going to, I, I wasn't even going to church, church right away. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like actually there wasn't really a church for me to be involved with. And at that point, when I got back, this was during spring break, I actually was slated to move in three or four months. Mm. So I, I ended up just reading the Bible on my own. Like, cause I was like, I had this idea. I was like, well, I don't want somebody telling me what to believe. Like, even as a high school student, I just want to know what, like to my best of my ability as a high school student, I just wanted to start reading the Bible and, and getting God. I didn't, I wouldn't even use that word, getting God's word into me. That, that wasn't even, I didn't even have words for that. I just wanted to know what the Bible actually said. So I just remember reading and reading and reading, and reading the Bible on my own. Anything stick out to you at that time that you can remember something that was compelling Yeah. Um, Because, I mean, you're coming to a book that you had little to no knowledge. So how did you know where to begin and and where did what stuck out to you at that time? Yeah, I remember reading through the Pauline epistles somewhere like Colossians and just being really pulled towards this idea that, oh, like in Christ, I didn't even know really, but in this, what that meant and still maybe like we're still learning, right. Even as I'm a 41 year old adult, but what does it mean for the spirit to produce this new life in me? And I saw this idea that life should be different on the other side of Jesus. And so actually like in a lot of ways I started, there were these changes, like like taking every thought captive. I remember reading that and be like, Oh, I should take every thought captive. Right. Like, like I should, I do need to be more kind to people. I do need to be more caring. And, and I really do like my internal life needs to, to, to be different. And just as much as my external life, so I do remember, I do remember even like staying up at night thinking about different passages that, that were congruent with those thoughts. What subtle or great changes began to happen in your life uh, that year and then in the coming years for you as a teenager? Because you left a piece of Justin behind in Romania. Yeah, I think uh, in a lot of ways, actually, I became less materialistic (laughs) and I came back and I became, yeah, I just, cause I just realized like what really mattered in life wasn't stuff or things like, like that, but really was a relationship with God and relationships with other people. And that that's carried through in some ways the rest of my life, I, I, I think. I mean, when you be, when you come to Christ in a in a context like Romania, amongst people like that, 
like you, you do real in reading God's word with, in reading the Bible with people who, who weren't super affluent, like, but were rich in, in faith. Like that really does shape your mentality. Yeah. Regardless of age. Regardless of age. Regardless of age. So in these uh, early movements of coming to the Christian faith and in these growth periods, were you able to find uh, a person, individuals to help you along in this journey? You certainly had to have questions when you were reading the scriptures. Yeah, so it's so funny. So I moved to the States and I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I had no idea where Albuquerque was. We were supposed to actually move to Florida, Tampa. And then my dad came home. He's like, actually, we're moving to Albuquerque. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, where? And he's like, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was like, is that another country? Are we staying overseas? What is this? <laughs> and so it was like a, a shock to me. Mm-hmm. And but we have moved you, to Albuquerque. Have uh, you been to the States before then? Yeah, yeah. I lived in California. Okay. So we lived in LA for a little while through my dad's station. And then another area. Um, in the middle of the Mojave desert, um, not, not probably all that far, maybe from Trona. We have a church in our presbytery in Trona, California, mm-hmm. um, probably on not that far from there. But, uh, so I moved back and then through one of my dad's coworkers, I meet this, his son, this one of my dad's coworker sons, and he's involved with a youth group at this church here in Albuquerque. And he invites me and I, I get involved with this, this youth group and I start I start kind of this discipleship process process through this, this youth group, but simultaneously in my high school, I have, I started developing this like friend network of friends and they're, they're believers. And I, I get involved with this ministry and it was an interesting experience. It really shaped me more probably than actually my youth ministry. And it was called right way. And Basically, we started with like eight high school students. It was all high school led, mm-hmm. all high school led. There were no adults. This was just all internally motivated. And, and a lot of these people are still pastors today. And we we meet in this Baptist church, Berean Baptist, independent Baptist church. And I think like the very first session, we watched some like video VHS tape on like the rapture, something crazy, something wild. Right? <laughs> we had no idea. We weren't theologically trained. We're just like, we want, God wants us to do something. Let's watch this video. Yeah. But that small group within three or four months, we went from having like eight people uh, on a Tuesday night to having 150 to 200 high school students show up. Wow. From one school? No, from all over Albuquerque. Okay. And, and it's all led. We're all doing the speaking. We're doing the worship. We're doing everything. We had adults, uh, two adults, but their job was to do security in the parking lot. Like, because we had, we had cars getting broken up into, and all of a sudden this, this thing is just going like gangbusters. And it wasn't like, like God did some amazing things. Like lives were being changed. Like so many people were coming to know high school students were coming to know Christ. It was like this little revival thing that lasted for about two years. And, uh, but it was also weird, like, cause we had no theological training. We were high school students. So like you'd get some guy, we'd like see some guy carrying a cross 
across the country and like on the the road in front we'd be like hey do you want to come and like share a little bit and so this random guy would share and all of a sudden we're making every high school student sign a a a pledge that they'll never drink alcohol <laughs> i don't know and so so like so god did some crazy like amazing things and then reflection were like it was all held together by god's grace mm-hmm. and but these same group the, the same circle of friends that we did this ministry together. Um, once we got into college, we, we saw God do similar things and we slowly matured together. Okay. So there was a group of you that you kept the momentum and you went to, you went to the same school after graduation. Yeah. We, most of them, us went to UNM. We all okay. felt God was calling us to do ministry there. And we, it was wild. We, we started a, a young adult ministry through my, our church, um, which was the church that I, I, that the same one that, that I, uh, had the youth ministry that I belonged to. Mm-hmm. And we probably had at some point two, we started a ministry called the well there. And we probably had about 300 college students, young adults coming to this. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was just amazing. Like you just see when, and it wasn't actually, I'll say in the long run, it wasn't really healthy for me because I felt like all ministry should be that easy. (laughs) (laughs) You just open the doors, we pray a lot. And like all of a sudden, like, like people come to know Christ and lives are being changed. And like, I just always thought like God made my ministry so easy and like, and being a leader so easy early on. And, uh, and then you realize when, when things aren't uh, easy, you start asking questions of like, what am I doing wrong here? Like, Mm -hmm. like I've had the doors open. Why aren't, and so it was just an interesting experience. Yeah, that's probably true. So you, you internalize like, um, the outcomes or the lack thereof as in something that you're doing and not even seeing it as a season. As a season. Exactly. Now that I'm, you, you learn that it's a season uh, eventually, but it's, but it's hard to go from, uh, from summer to, to winter. I'd rather go from winter to summer. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but during that same time when I'm doing the other ministry at UNM, I was involved with a lot of, international student ministry because that was always something that was part of who I was. And so I was part actually of a Baptist, the Baptist student union. I would go there for lunch and we would do a lot of really cool um, ministry partnered with ISI, which is international students incorporated. And they would host, they would help churches facilitate relationships with international students to help them transition to the United States and then we would, we had like a ministry with international students and it was just awesome. We'd have, um, international student talent shows and potlucks and we'd just get like loads of international students and we'd have such a good time. And a lot of my, my really good friends from that time were from Thailand or who knows from Spain and from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really, really special time, fun. I mean, just as a college student, that was just great hanging out with people from all over the world. 
So what were you thinking at this time in terms of career? Is it ministry? Um, what, what were your studies focused on then? Well, I, I didn't really have a clear path at that point, but I, I really was, I, I was drawn to two things. I, I, I did a lot of courses in psychology and then I did actually a lot of courses in religious studies. And so at UNM, it's not, it's not a Christian school. It's a secular institution. It's a state state school. And so I'm, I'm getting, doing these Bible studies on one side, but then I'm taking these courses, um, not just in the Christian faith, but, you know, I, in, in, I took, uh, classes on Islam, on Buddhism, on Eastern religions and also Western religion. So I'm getting this broad, this broad understanding of how people see the world in general and how important faith is in shaping their interaction of the world. And, and in this, these courses, I had a couple professors who their main job, they felt like their main purpose was to try to deconstruct naive college students' faith. And, and so talking about the Bible and this and this history and, you know, and so I was like, I'm here on fire saying, God, do all this stuff in this ministry on one side of my life. And then this other side of the, my life, I'm like getting inundated with reasons why the Christian faith might be inconsistent. And, and so it was this interesting, these two kind of weather patterns that were just kind of colliding in my life and creating <laughs> a lot of existential dialogue. Yeah, I bet. Um, but the, all, all the same too, though, there were also really great classes. Like there was one uh, professor Burgess, one of my favorite professors. Uh, I still remember him to this day. And he taught a, a class on the history of Christian thought and it was two semesters and I took both semesters. And it was amazing because his whole purpose was to start from the earliest theologians um, and work our way to the modern day. And we would just, every hundred years, we'd read one author from every hundred years, basically. So I remember reading as a junior in college origin. And then we went to, we did Augustine, we did Tertullian and we went so forth all the way to Karl Barth and, and Rudolf Bultmann. And it was so it was so eye opening to be able to study the Bible, but then also to read these authors, uh, Martin Luther, and just to realize, wow, actually the the faith is so broad, and we belong to this tradition that's so deep, and and it really, for me, it was so healthy because I kind of grew up in the young restless and reform movement. You can look that up on the internet if you're listening to this podcast, and it kind of a defined understanding of what it means to be a Christian and to know that there were all these believers before us that had different understandings of the faith. It really allowed me just to like hold my faith very humbly. And it actually created this deep sense of orthodoxy in me um, of gosh, orthodoxy is so broad and beautiful. And like, there's so many great voices and these people were so smart. Like, Augustine, Chrysostom, and like they were asking hard questions within their own context and they were finding these answers. Mm -hmm. And, and so it really, at that, that age, 
it really, I was having these, some, some people inducing doubts, but also finding this deep satisfaction in the historic church hmm. um, and listening to their voices and, and really gravitating to them in a lot of ways. So that was being shaped in that in psychology too, and in, in pastoral care, like, um, but I wasn't sure I wanted to be a pastor at all. But it crossed your mind. Well, I was in ministry. And so right. it was, I was doing ministry. And so, and I was a leader. So it was there. It really was. Hmm. And so I, yeah. And, and so, so that was while I was in college. Uh, but then also doing international student ministry. And then I went on my first mission trip while I was in college. So that was a big deal. My friend, Tina, she had a Thai restaurant at the Baptist student union. She, and so she was a believer. She cooked Thai food every day. And she asked me to go to Thailand to do a mission trip. And I said, sure. Well, and actually I was actually hesitant. I didn't say sure right away. (laughs) But I was, I was helping with this youth conference at my church and the focus was on missions. And I just felt like at that conference, I felt like God was calling me to go. Mm. And so a friend and I, we, we went, God provided the support. We went and I lived in Thailand for three months. And again, we saw like 50 people come to know Christ. Like it was this really intense time. And like, I made really good friends on that trip and I got to see how intentional ministry could be. And we saw God do some amazing things. And again, it was like 50, 60 people got baptized from our ministry that summer and they got incorporated and discipled within a church. So they weren't just free floating, but there was a church for them to attend that to help disciple them. And, and again, I was like, oh gosh, you just follow God and everything's easier. Like in terms of, well, in terms of fruitfulness outcome, (laughs) again, the outcome, the outcome situation, right? (laughs) I'm laughing because, uh, my experience has been different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so anyways, yeah. And I have stories from Thailand. Maybe I'll share it later in this podcast, but. You know, I came back from there and I thought maybe I was called to to missions right there, right? Like, so that was on my mind. Um, and then after that, I I helped start a missions program at at my church. And before it was kind of this like hodgepodge, like where they were like giving like little tiny uh, support checks to like 20 different ministries. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but we decided, or we prayerfully felt like God was calling us to something different to say, how can we personally be connected to missions globally and connect our people to missions globally? In other words, how do we do less better? And so we started this whole, and this whole missions program and I was just a college student, but I had a team of six people on our missions committee. And we developed a relationship with this, these Robin Alachi, this indigenous people in Guatemala. And I was on the first trip to do an exploratory um, uh, time down there. And we were working with Wycliffe translators who were translating the, the New Testament into their Mayan dialect. 
And it was awesome. We we really it was a healthy thing because we developed this kind of co-leadership model with the with the the local leaders there. And it was a mutually beneficial relationship. We'd fly them up to Albuquerque to 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 spend time and speak. And we'd go down there. We helped create certain educational institutions. We asked them, what do you want to do? How can we help you do this? How do we help your church grow? And to this day, there's still a strong relationship between that church and the churches down down there. And so just to be part of the from the ground up of starting from scratch and seeing what it looks like to be involved with in a tangible way where your average mom or dad or person in the congregation knows the faces and the names and the stories of these people over there. It's it was it was transformative for the congregation. It wasn't just the missions committee, wasn't just a silos ministry, but it was an effort of the whole church. And people had keychains, right, with faces and names and were praying for these people. And 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 so it was really cool because it was church centric. Hmm. And and you could see how the international missions help contribute to missions locally and and what it means to be involved in on and on in purpose even in your neighborhoods it it created kind of a it created just an identity of mission holistically not just overseas but also create ha, equip people for missions local domestically how did you get introduced and involved in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? What's that story? Man, uh, maybe I'm, I, I need to tease that out now just so I can understand that. Maybe I need to verbally process. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I went off to seminary. So I went off to seminary. I moved out to Florida. I went to a seminary called Reformed Theological Seminary, which was really healthy for me. So healthy because... You know, it's a confessional seminary. I would say it was um, uh, RTS. It's it's unofficially sponsored by a, I would say, a more conservative Presbyterian denomination. Um, in terms of its orthodox ties, the way it understands Scripture, the way it understands just the the orthodox faith. But in 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 other ways, it was really great that it was rooted kind of in this historical orthodoxy, like like and I love that idea. It was like you know tied to the historic church. Um, I know some some seminaries like our seminary, it's ecumenical and that that has different connotations, and that's for another discussion. But I loved it because it was very diverse in terms of we had Mennonites, we had Baptists, we had Anglicans, and all these people who who are grounded in the historic faith, um, broadly speaking, but they also had like really great modern sensibilities, like in terms of how do we hold on to the Orthodox? How do we hold on to the historic faith? But how do we do so in such a humble way? Right. And so their whole purpose wasn't to like deconstruct, even though they did some, some of that and like some, really healthy, positive ways. It just, it really allowed me to have some answers, question, I mean, questions answered. Hmm. 
mm. and some answers questioned both. <laughs> um, but to do it in a way that didn't leave me with nothing, right? Mm. Like, like it left me with a really positive, really biblically grounded, really culturally sensible faith that produced life. You know, sometimes I, I, I've had friends on both sides of the, the spectrum. I had a friend who went to this very dogmatic um, seminar, probably the mo- one of the most dogmatic, dogmatic seminaries in our country. And he couldn't even ask questions. And it's so dogmatic that his faith became brittle. And now he, he's atheist. Because there was no, no give, no sensibility in, in, in it. And then I've had friends who've gone to like, very more progressive, very progressive seminaries and their faith gets deconstructed so much that they, they're so broadly Christian that they don't even know what it means in some way to, to live this out in a way that has much power to it. And so I felt really blessed to be in this place where, where it was open-minded, but it had really good biblical substance and and it, it was a place that it was exactly what I needed. So I'm at the seminary and um and I'm finishing up my seminary and I got recruited by a couple different options. One was with this evangelical, I, I don't even want to give the organization's name because right now, but they they wanted me to do actually a Spanish or either a bicultural or a Spanish-speaking church plant with my buddy. One of my one of my best friends, mm-hmm. and so it was exciting because they wanted us. They were recruiting us, and it was either going to be in Albuquerque or in Mexico. That was part of the issue; is they weren't very clear. But we get started getting into it, and there were some unhealthy organizational dynamics where they were using language like, "Which one of you is going to become the alpha male here? Which one of you going to?" And we're like, "Hold on, guys! Like, like can't we just be co-pastors? Like, like." And there were all these different layers to it that we we prayed and we just realized, you know, actually, if they're asking us to do this, we need to we need to see that this is God's will and there are way too many red flags. And so we didn't have these options hmm. to we didn't know what we we're gonna do, but we knew this wasn't God, this isn't what God had for us. So we backed out of that. And then I remember I was looking on some website, somebody directed me to a website and it wasn't even a CP website. I think it was like an evangelical Presbyterian website. And there was a a calling for Heights Cumberland Presbyterian as the youth pastor there. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I actually had a, a little bit of contact with Heights Cumberland Presbyterian through a friend of mine. And I knew they were a biblical church. I knew they were Presbyterian. I felt comfortable in Presbyterian context. And I sent them an email saying, hey, I'm interested in this job. What are the next steps? And they responded. They said, I'm sorry. The position's been filled already. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, and then two weeks later, I got a call from the search. I mean, I got an email from the search committee. And they said, actually, the person backed out. We we're interested. I sent my resume. And about two months, about six weeks later, I'm packing up the moving truck and I'm moving from back from Florida, back to my home place of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow. How long did you serve at the Albuquerque 
Albuquerque Church? 14 years. 14 years. Wow. Yeah. So I started doing youth ministry there. And I did that for about four years. And I got saw that was really awesome. God was so good. And and I went through some hard things, but that's life and that's ministry. Um, the church went through some hard things, hard transitions, um, especially because Larry Moss, he was a pastor there for 35 years. And I started the month after he retired. So <laughs> I was there during a chapter where the church was trying to refine itself and mm-hmm. and mourn and revision and find peace. But in regards to the youth ministry, it was great. So Justin, what is it about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church that you have found so attractive and fulfilling? Yeah, great question. Some in- interesting answers. I've had to reflect upon that. First, <laughs> you I mean, feel like re- this is- you mean reflect prior to the podcast or <laughs> for the general, podcast? <laughs> I think it's 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 a question I've had to ask myself multiple times actually. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I'm asking you because of your exposure, it, you know, um, some people have grown up in one denomination or only know one denomination. And yep. you, you've had the opportunity to uh, serve within the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in a different phase or stage of your life. So yeah. you have this perspective of being able to go, oh, this is what has drawn me to this uh, reformed body, this Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And I'm, I'm always interested to hear from those who have come from different places because you bring great insight and perspective. Yeah, that's a really, so thank you. That's a, that's a really good question. First, it's not like I was looking through a catalog of denominations and I, I felt like <laughs> the CT church was just glowing in a page, that's funny. like off the, off the page. And it was just reflecting and being like, this is my true church. Like, like that's not, I honestly, I knew Heights was a good church. They offered me a position like, and I accepted it. And I don't even know when I accepted the position, if I fully knew who the Cumberland Presbyterians were. I didn't know. I didn't even, I don't even know if I knew the church was Cumberland Presbyterian actually. And so I, I get this position there. Like I, so it's funny the way Heights Cumberland Presbyterian church was even on the sign. We, we, we got this for a while. We had to change our rebrand, our logo to make it clear, people who always thought our name was Heights Cumberland Presbyterian Church, as if as if the name of the church was just Heights Cumberland. Oh yeah. And so I even had that like mentality. But what I came to know and appreciate about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, there's some funny things. Okay, this is going to sound bad. Maybe it is. I don't know. But something coming coming from certain backgrounds like certain denominations like like some denominations they feel like oh we are the denomination like we are the church in its purest form i have no there's no thought that crosses my mind about being cumberland presbyterian or being part of this denomination or in conversations with any one individual where where people feel like we are the church we're not <laughs> like like <laughs> Like we don't have the most perfect theology. That's okay, right? <laughs> like we have a good confession. I like our confession. It's really simple and beautiful, and it's 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 actually a great confession. 
but is it the most pure distillation of God's word ever in the history? No, it's not, right? Like, like, and are we the biggest denomination these days? No. Do we have like the best systems in place? We don't. We're we're not perfect. We're not great. And it's good to actually, it's very freeing to be part of a denomination that just exists for the sake of the gospel, not for itself. And I hope actually, at least that's my experience. Like, and I know from an outsider, now I I'm coming to know from insiders perspectives, like there's a lot of internal kind of genealogies of like, and it's beautiful of like my great grandfather was Cumberland Presbyterian and (laughs) pastor. and, And there's this whole, like this whole medieval, construction of like genealogies of Cumberland's marrying Cumberland's and incorporating. And that's good too. That, but that's not the reason why I joined, uh, whatever. Maybe my great grandkids will be like fifth generation CP. (laughs) The other thing that I did appreciate right away was I came in 2009, almost right after they had a general assembly in Japan. And that was amazing to me. I was like, Whoa, like we have churches in Japan and they're hosting general assembly. Mm. Like, like we're not a U at the, my impression of that moment was like, we're not a U.S. centric like church. We have, we are like international. I thought that was great. And then what really kept me as a CP wasn't the denomination. Like it wasn't, it just wasn't like, like I didn't know much about our denomination being in Del Cristo. I love my presbytery. My presbytery is like was like my family. Like like we have an amazing presbytery, like the spirit of our presbytery highly unified. Like like so many different people. It was just it's awesome to have like second and third generation Asian believers who were in the tech field starting companies up in San Francisco. Like doing fellowship with first generation Spanish speaking immigrants in El Paso. And we're like a family together. Like we show up and there's like joy. We can go through these hard things. And like we're mutually motivated for mission. And and like to me, like that was a home. It is. Del Cristo is like a home. And so that was a big sticking point for me. I had opportunities after four years in a youth ministry. I got recruited by another denomination to do a church plant in Florida. And and like I I had to like kind of weigh that out. And I, I, I felt like God's call on me wasn't done in this, this denomination. So do I feel like the CP denomination is the greatest denomination? No, but it's my home and it's my family mm-hmm. and it's where God has called me to. I, I really, I really do believe that. And, and the more I explore, like even in this position, working people with people like, John Jairo and Esperanza, and then seeing the work that's in Asia and Hong Kong, meeting Jackson Sui, who, who's in Macau, and he has ties to our presbytery. Like, it's pretty awesome, some some of the relationships that, that we have and connections. Del Cristo can, can, the elements that I like about and love about Del Cristo actually can be found on a global scale. And that's kind of that's kind of my heart for that. It's been my experience as well. Is 
what's been created in Del Cristo Presbytery during the um, Presbytery meetings is just a snapshot of the denomination at large. Yeah. Um, we come together, you're able to share and equip one another for mission and for ministry, uh, worship together, but also fellowship as well. And part of that is the geography forces you to, to have to do that. There isn't driving 45 minutes to attend a meeting and then returning back. You yeah. have to be intentional and make plans to be a part of the presbytery. And yeah. so I've always enjoyed uh, going out to be a part of that presbytery to to observe, but but also to uh, inco- be incorporated and engrafted into that presbytery, which takes time. It does. It takes time. Justin, what are you reading right now that you would like to share and you recommend to the listeners of Cumberland Road? What am I reading right now? Well, I mean, or not at I the read? moment, but because we're having a conversation, but something that yeah. has been in your book stack that uh, in a recent read or one that you're in the middle of that you would recommend. Gosh. So, I mean, there's some a lot of books that I I've enjoyed throughout the years. And there's some books that I've read recently. I mean, so going back to like the college situation, things that I read during that time, something that I I always return back to is uh Ponce's by Blaise Pascal. I I think he speaks to the modern heart so well. Like and for those who don't know Blaise Pascal, he was a famous mathematician. He was a savant with mathematics and physics and all these different things. But he had this, he had a few experiences that gave him this deep devotion for to, to Christ and to, to, to his kingdom. And so he really reasoned through reason. And how does reason like what what's the beauty of reason? Like there's he's probably few individuals in history that are more reasonable than him, but the way his brain would just calculate things. But he also saw the, like the limitations of reason mm-hmm. and he saw the necessity for faith and and doubt and all these different things. And he really not only what he said, but how he processed things really has shaped me to today, especially in, in the context of North America and in the context of my upbringing in the context of New Mexico, which isn't the most Bible Belt place in the world. He, he really, he really kind of, he really calibrated my, my, my faith. Hmm. Um, another good one for my context is I, I like James K. Smith. He's out of Michigan, out of Calvin College. And he's he's a philosopher, theologian, uh, does a lot of work in this field called phenomenology. And he he writes some really good things on liturgy and how liturgy is what sh- shapes our hearts. And it, we are, he's very Augustinian in his approach. So 
it's not about our intellect that drives and changes our lives. It's about our what we love. It's not what we think. It's about what we love. And so he really kind of overlays this idea of liturgy and says, all everything from Walmart to sporting events to the church all have these liturgies that shape our passions and our love, right? Like, like I mean, the national championship football game was college football game was just on TV. How many liturgies were happening throughout those events? Right? <laughs> people show up and they have go Michigan signs or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And where do these people show their devotion? They have pilgrimages to these events. They pay thousands of dollars to celebrate they have they have their holy costumes right like like their whole life is oriented the way they organize time is around these events and these situations and so he's really good and like he does just from a sociological perspective of saying how is the church taking these liturgies seriously how do we understand time as believers and it's really practical it sounds philosophical but it's not but he also has a really good book where he summarizes Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian writer, um, and, he, and he has a book that summarizes Charles Taylor's book called The Secular Age. Um, but James K. A, a James K. Smith's summary of it is called How Not to Be Secular, and it's really good, it, like for us in a North American context, just to realize like. You know, people are becoming more secular these days. It's not as dramatic as I think people think it is. Um, it'll never be in the U.S., uh, but it really shows how we today, like in the Great Dechurch, Dechurching, which is another good book. My actually friend from my church wrote the book. For my, he was a he went. We went to the same church in Florida. And same seminary, and uh, and how people who are losing their faith aren't really losing their faith; they're adopting a different faith. And so, really, secularism has its own unproven beliefs, its own value system. And so, really, that book really helps help me understand that when people are are becoming something, they're becoming something new but it has just as much faith involved and in fact like often that new faith is more dogmatic in many ways and culturally shaped than the christian faith mm-hmm. it's it's really good it's really it's not a super hard read and then for the fun side of it i love um everything sad is untrue by daniel nayeri and he's a iranian immigrant to the us and it's about the story of how his family ended up his mom and his sibling ended up in the U S and he went from Iran to living in the Bible belt of Oklahoma. And, and it's like such a good read. And it's like a tearjerker, like, and it involves faith. It involves faith in Christ because that actually was the catalyst for his mom to escape Iran and come to the U S because she had a vision of Jesus. And she came from a prominent family in Iran that was tied to the, the caliphate. And so that's a big no-no. And so like they had to escape because of their faith in Christ. And so there's this whole narrative of tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. And just like the gospels, it has a gospel overlay where a singular redemptive moment can flip its world upside down and redeem every tragedy up 
that that you've gone through up to that point. It just takes a singular redemptive moment. Mm. And it's amazing. I love it. It's creative. It has a lot of story, like great storytelling, a lot on Iranian culture, and a lot of about Oklahoma culture too. So <laughs> it's a fusion. It's fun. It's one of the best reads I've read in a long time. <laughs> Justin, I have one more question for you. Sure. There are a lot of young Justins out in the world right now who are going to the library or they're doing their search for their identity or the ability to connect to something or someone larger than them. What wisdom, what encouraging words would you share if they happen to run across this podcast? Yeah, don't don't be afraid of being open-minded. Don't be afraid of asking the questions. Don't be afraid of looking at details about things. Like my best friend, he's Muslim, right? Like like and I've read the Quran twice. I read it in detail. We've had talks. I know his I know his faith really well. Um, I know about, like in my undergrad now, I've read the Dhammapada several times now. And, and what I would say is actually let that search lead you to Christ. We don't have to be really black and white about things, right? Like, like, like part of, part of, what we believe is there's one Lord, one God, one savior, Jesus Christ. And historically in the church, this was so helpful to me throughout time, right? Is, is we believe that in the human heart, we are created to find this fulfillment in Jesus, whatever culture that we come from, whatever background that we come from. And so, like, for example, in the early churches, if you look at these Eastern Orthodox churches, you see, like, paintings and murals of Socrates. Because mm. they believe, like, somehow Socrates' search for truth was merely a, a arrow that pointed to our need for Jesus, right? All these questions he asked pointed towards their need for, for Jesus. And in the same way, like, I, when I was in my undergrad, and I still read some of these books today, like there was a Japanese theologian and he was very much into Shintoism, right? The spiritualism. Uh, and a missionary came by and gave him this, this, this Bible. He started reading and, and all, he was like, finally, all these questions that my faith produced in me finally have found their answer in, in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so like, if somebody rent, checks out a book from Buddhism, like, like in some sense, like, Buddhism like reveals certain things, right? Like, like how the temporary, how suffering is real and, and any hope we put in our, ourselves for, uh, in this current time is going to lead us to disappointment in the long run because everything is mutable and it changes and it dissolves. Um, and so, yeah, if you have desire, then you're going to ultimately, it's going to lead you to suffering. That's not untrue, right? But the beautiful thing is, is that 
the gospel says that's true, right? Like, like die to yourself, but be, but also says be raised in Christ. And so like Paul would say that would probably be like a half truth, but that we are meant to actually have desire for that, which doesn't change. Right. (laughs) And that the temporary is meant to produce a hunger for the eternal. And so in one way I, I like to say is like, like we have our old Testament that points to that leads on the sour note of longing for a Messiah. But I think there's actually like 10,000 old testaments out there, right. That produce this desire. And when you think through it, it leads us to, to, to the savior, Jesus, God in the flesh, who's came to make sense of all human longings, whether you're Jewish or you're Buddhist, or your Shinto, or even secular, right? Even secular, like, look at our value system today. We love diversity. It's on every, like, soft drink commercial and deodorant commercial. It's everything has to be a diverse. But we have no means, we don't have any internal capital to actually see diversity flourish. We love it. We know that's longing. Um, But we don't have the but we we don't know how to get there and that's but the beauty of the gospel is that in revelation chapter 7 for example you have every nation tribe and tongue coming around the throne saying worthy is the lamb who was slain like like we actually have the spiritual capital to both embrace the beauty of different cultures languages but we also have this thing called grace which allows us to actually love and accept people who are different and to, to, to be, have diversity and unity, right? Instead of unity and diversity, that's the gospel of the secularism. We say, no, like Jesus is the linchpin that ultimately creates the environment where actually true diversity happens. And again, as the CP, we have that happening here. We are slowly emerging, hopefully, I don't know how long it will take as a global church, but we're actually seeing tangibly, globally, in reality, the fulfillment of what this world really wants, even in secular culture, right? Like, it's awesome. And so don't be afraid of being open-minded. Don't be afraid of jumping into the details of what actually these faiths believe. Don't be afraid of their texts. Don't be afraid of their communities. But also realize, like, like, I think if you go deep enough, you actually will f- see that Jesus and the church are the fulfillments and the longings of, of whatever manifestation of faith or doubt or secularism or atheism or whatnot. Like, God is there, and he, if you, if you truly are inquiring, I, at this point in my life, as 41-year-old with gray hair, like, I've seen it over and over again. I've seen seen people come to know Christ through these these means and hopefully people who are Christians their faith leads them to Jesus because that's not always the case either right <laughs> Justin before we got on mic we you were wondering exactly what you were going to talk about what you were going to share yeah. and you have no you've had no problem opening up uh, your life your thoughts and your ministry and your journey with me. And I appreciate that. 
I was looking forward to hearing it. Oh, um, yeah. Because I've only got little bits in here and there. Um, I guess we've run into each other. We're looking at 10, 12 years now. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so it's been it's been a privilege to be able to sit down with you and hear your story, hear your journey in fullness. Yeah, thank you. There's more, but um, maybe you, if you're out there, you can always talk to me at General Assembly and or whatnot or try to find me somewhere in Albuquerque and I'll continue that conversation. <laughs> thank you, Justin. All right, TJ, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cumberland Road. Blaise Pascal, mathematician, philosopher, and inventor wrote, People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on a basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Thanks for listening.